ASI, Attitudes of Sexual Integrity. My name is Rashad. This is episode 21, season 5. Some bumper music by Royal Deluxe on the podcast today. The title of this episode, Crossing the Line into Stillness. There's a website for this podcast. It's asi247.org. Next week on the podcast, my good friend Seth Taylor and I tackle the subject brought on by a listener. Uh, We're going to talk about the subject of codependency. Not as expert psychologists in the area of relationship, but as guys who've lived the walk who've been through the journey, have stepped on the landmines, and maybe we can uh, share a little wisdom from our point of view. It's a show that was inspired by a listener's email. So, russ at asi247.org, if you have any questions or you just want to vent, um, you just want to express some news or something about your life, um, I'd love to hear from you. Again, russ at asi247.org. Again, this is not digital therapy. I am not a health, mental health professional. And if I was a mental health professional, this is general infotainment information, all right? Even Dr. Phil, (laughs) you can't diagnose or get into your story because that takes somebody one-on-one. You don't do that through broadcasting. We speak in some generalities here. But when listeners share their real struggles and frustrations and the feeling stuckness, there's something very freeing or liberating about getting that out of you, right? Like it's on the inside and it passes the lip gate or the typing gate and you share it with somebody else. It takes it out of the thriving darkness and into the light where it can be looked at and poked with a stick. And it feels like a burden's lifted a little bit. This is something I've seen and experienced in my own recovery, in my own life. Um... But the topic today, uh, I have a treat for you. I did not do a podcast this week, so I have some something even better, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. This is intentional, purposeful audio. Uh, my mom's memorial is actually tomorrow, and I've been working on that and some video and music that I'm putting together and going through a lot of pictures my wife is scanning and it's been a really emotional week so still learning how to feel stuff you know without self-medicating and if I don't know you guys pray out there if you could throw up a a prayer from my family and and myself I'd, I'd appreciate it what I have today is a gem Richard Rohr um, in Scotland at Norwich Cathedral. If you don't know who Richard Rohr is, he's a Franciscan priest. Um, That's right, a Roman Catholic priest. But at heart, he's a Christian mystic, and that's why I like this guy. Never thought I'd be playing a, a sermon by a Catholic priest. But this guy and the stuff he talks about in this audio is amazing. And I didn't see any copyright stuff to it, so I'm going to go ahead and share it. It's about an hour long. Richard Rohr, his latest book is called The Divine Dance, and it's in bookstores everywhere now. I'm waiting for the audio. It would be awesome to to listen to it. Um, former guest who's been on the show a couple of times, Paul Young, uh, who wrote The Shack, which will be, uh, the movie will be out in March, by the way, uh, The Shack, the movie. Also wrote Eve and Crossroads, Paul Young. He wrote the foreword to Richard Rohr's book, The Divine Dance. In this intentional, purposeful audio you're about to hear, at the end, 
there is a bit of homework to what you're about to listen to, and it's not the end. So if you want to watch this uh, video, search for Being Stillness with Richard Rohr, and you can see what I left out. It's only about five minutes, but that five minutes is really good, too. What this episode ends on, though, I think is important as an exercise and you'll hear it right after this bumper music by Royal Deluxe. The song is called The Payoff. And I've lived a life where there's not a lot of lines I wouldn't cross. And I was looking for a payoff. Even in the song, you hear this kind of heartbeat rising. There's something about wanting to feel alive and experience some kind of payoff, right? That's what we've been programmed to believe the payoff and even in religious circles this black and white thinking it seems to be so ingrained in western theology it's like water you know you tell a fish it's in water and they're like what's water and i'm just as guilty something i've said on the show before that some people may think is weird and strange and i've also said this in emails and being in contact and communication with people i would say you know Part of me is really glad that you're here. You're glad I'm I'm sexually addicted and I am saddled with this horrible thing. In a way, yeah, I am, especially if you're super religious. Because working through any life-choking addiction is an inner experience that you feel on the inside, that you work through on the inside. It will be an intimate walk with God. And the Spirit will move inside you from the inside out. Uh, This guy, he talks about recovery some. He's been around the kind of recovery movement for a while. And that's something that I had to examine in my own heart was I avoided this man for for years just because he was a Catholic priest. And I judged him for that because of my issues with Catholics. And this is so freaking good what you're about to hear. As humans, we are so thirsty at some level for the payoff. And there is a payoff, but it's at a deeper level. There's something we're thirsting for that's good. But what gets in the way, the addicted heart, the addicted mind, the compulsive, there's something to just wanting to breathe and be. On the other side of this bumper, the man who behavioral scientists and people that are actually seeing life change and well-being and therapists and the, the caregivers, this is very old spiritual stuff that's being realized today, and I'm going to shut up now. On the other side of this bumper... Richard Roar. Till next week. Bye. Light a match. Let it go. The fire catch. Explode. Blow your mind. One more time. Hurricane. Running through my veins. I'm buck wild. Honey child. This is the payoff. This is the payoff. Thank you, Father. Good evening. They told me I might be a little more visible up here, but now I see I don't need it anyway. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for having me. And, uh, I'm really quite amazed that on a weekday evening there'd be this many of you. Uh, And we had a similar crowd in um, London, Westminster Cathedral last night. So it certainly tells me there's some kind of wonderful and deep desiring going on in our churches. 
And I pray that whatever I try to say tonight will somehow be appropriate and helpful to that. I'm convinced, and more and more uh, teachers are saying this, that, that all of the great world religions, certainly Christianity, at the more mature levels, recognize that we really needed a different set of eyes with which to read or, or certainly understand spiritual reality. And that if we approach spiritual realities with the same, uh, what I call, Mexican jumping bean mind, that we approach our daily work, uh, we're not going to get very far. And we're not going to see very much. In fact, we tend to pull it inside of the world uh, that we already live. And so the great mysteries like love and faith and truth and God and mystery really can't get in because by the middle of life most of us have pretty much a grid at work and the only things that get in are what we already agree with. And so religion spoke at the more mature levels of things like contemplation, meditation, silence, recognizing that we had to clear away the normal mind because the normal mind that gets us through the day which is rather dualistic it reads everything in terms of either or all or nothing black and white is simply not adequate to mystery and what we've come to see is that uh, much of the teaching of that because you do need to be taught unless you're a simple uh, almost unsophisticated person, and unfortunately none of us are anymore, uh, you lose it. You lose it very early. And, and you have to be led back to the beginning, and as T.S. Eliot would say, and then know it for the first time. So that's what we're going to try to do, even though this is a very, very oversimplified and brief introduction. I'm happy that uh, a few months from now, uh, I think a much more scholarly teacher than myself, uh, Cynthia Bourgeau, an Anglican priest who I have taught with several times in America, is going to come. And I'm sure she can carry through and follow up on whatever I'm going to try to say here. But at any rate, if we, we, won't, we won't be able to move beyond uh, this normal dualistic either-or way of thinking unless we see how trapped we are in it. And that's pretty much first stage contemplation. It's observing your stream of consciousness and suffering the necessary humiliation. Because if you watch your mind, you're going to see that, and, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to anybody, but you're going to see that you go about every 30 seconds without thinking some repetitive thoughts, some useless thoughts, some compulsive thoughts, some negative thoughts, some paranoid thoughts. Uh, and this is indeed humiliating uh, to recognize that, but you have to suffer that humiliation. When in the first chapter of Mark it says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, I've always wondered why the Spirit had to drive him. But I think it's because human nature doesn't really want to go there. Because when you go into the stillness, when you go into the silence, the first thing that comes up, I hate to tell you, is not the good stuff, but the bad stuff. And I think that's why a lot of people don't go very deep on the spiritual journey. Because when you take the lid, off of the unconscious, when you sit in the silence and refuse to feed your own compulsive and negative styles of thinking, what comes up are all those unhealed hurts, all those past unresolved relationships, uh, the conversation this morning that ended with a little poke at your ego, uh, and those are the things that that just keeps stirring and just keep emerging. And so if you go back to that same verse in Mark's Gospel, 
It says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. It's wildness you face. And it says there he met the wild beasts. So first you meet the wild beasts. <laughs> All the stuff that you don't want to deal with. In fact, Thomas Keating, who's probably one of the main teachers of centering prayer in our country, the Trappist monk, uh, he calls contemplative prayer, which is really just a, a form of praying without words, uh, he calls it God's therapy. And in fact, if you want to save $10,000, I guess that's 10,000 pounds, uh, which is worth more than dollars right now, uh, in, uh, in therapy, uh, not that that's the reason for contemplative prayer, but in fact, it's one of the wonderful side payoffs that so many of the things that we thought were important turn out not to be really important in the great scheme of things. So many angers and judgments and fears that for some reason we like to feed and live on show themselves to be ephemeral, passing, useless, a waste of time. I know that the book uh, by Eckhart Tolle has also become popular here in England, uh, the book Power of Now. And really, I, I wrote to him telling him that he was taking the great Christian tradition that we called the sacrament of the present moment, or the grace of the present moment. And he was really just speaking it to us in modern terms, but it was very traditional. And some people, because they're honestly not in touch with the tradition, they sometimes call traditional things New Age things. And I go to the bookstore and Eckhart Tolle's in the New Age section. In fact, his teaching is quite traditional. And one of the things he teaches that I know the medieval Franciscans taught us uh, in my novitiate training, and that was that the human mind can only do two things. The human mind can endlessly reprocess the past and endlessly worry about the future. Please take my word for this. The mind, the educated Western mind even more so, cannot be present in the now. Maybe you didn't know that. <laughs> you can't think the now. You need a whole different set of tools, a whole different access point to be able to live right here, right now. Normally, the now feels boring. It feels lonely. It feels insufficient. It feels inadequate. Uh, it always feels like it's not enough. And so that little jumping bean mind takes off and we want to think about something. And unfortunately, more bad news, and this is why he met the wild beast first, uh, the things that the mind and certainly the ego is more attracted to aren't negative things. Now be honest, you get a lot more energy. I don't know why it's true, but when you can think that someone's done you wrong. And then that little negative feeling, you create a storyline around it, it hardens into a storyline. And if you watch yourself, once that momentary negative feeling hardens into a mental storyline, the negative emotion triples, triples. And now you're invested in it. And there's something sweet about it, if you'd be perfectly honest. To feel that someone else has done you wrong or hurt you, for some reason, makes you feel superior. Without doing anything right or falling in love with God or anybody else, if you can prove that she's bad, it makes you feel good. Now, isn't that stupid? <laughs> but you know what? It apparently isn't stupid because it works. And most people do it. All you need to do is think something hateful, blaming, accusing about another group, another race, another religion, or another person, and suddenly you feel superior and saved. 
Now those are the really malicious patterns that, that you have to recognize in early stage contemplation. And I, I hate to speak for all of you, but I'm going to speak for all of you. You all do it. Without knowing you, I know you do. Unless you've had years of practice in contemplation. Where you see those patterns, you see how fruitless and silly and useless and self-serving and negative they are. And uh, you learn to hand them over to God. So the next line in that gospel, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. There he met the wild beasts. But thank God, then it says, and angels ministered to him. In three lines, you have a marvelous framing of the whole journey of prayer. What we're finding happening, and especially in my work as, as a spiritual director and as a retreat giver, is that more and more people are, for good or bad reasons, I'm not here to judge, but are moving beyond religion as mere external belief systems. Because we realize to say, I believe this, I believe that, really asks very little of you. You can remain a highly egotistical person, a highly negative person, while believing intellectually almost all the doctrines of the creed. By the way, excuse my voice, I'm at the end of this two-week period and I'm getting a little hoarse and fighting a cold, so if I crack once in a while, uh, that's the reason. But, uh, well, we say but we have to have belief systems, probably, but what we're learning in, in the work of, of transformation is that we need practices. And that's why we're going to practice at the end of my talk in this gathering that I told might be, might be 500 people. We're going to be in silence for about 10 minutes together. And what I'm going to do in this time is try to prepare you, if you haven't had any preparation or teaching, in what to do with your mind, what to do with your stream of consciousness, what to do with those compulsive thoughts, those negative and habitual thoughts that we all have that come to control us. I didn't finish my previous thought. When I read Eckhart Tolle's book, I, I wrote to him. He lives in Vancouver, and he studied at Cambridge, though, nearby, a German by birth. And I told him that I agreed with almost everything in his book, except one thing. He said in the book that he believed that 83% of human thought was repetitive and useless. And I, I, I said, you know, I don't think you're right. I think it's 93%. And uh, in one of his latest books, he seems to have agreed with me, or probably just grew in his own experience. He upped it to 98%. <laughs> now, that might seem like an overstatement, but brothers and sisters, if you have the humility and the patience to just watch your stream of consciousness, you will say 98% of your thought patterns are repetitive and useless. <laughs> and are not going to get you anywhere new, anywhere new at all. So you can't heal something if you don't acknowledge that it's there. So that's why you've got to face the wild beast, first of all. You've got to see how this, this jumping bean mind, this uh, flypaper mind, uh, simply is not adequate to the task. And that there's some place else that we've got to go. Now let me give you just a very brief history. I'm, I'm sure Cynthia can do a much better job in a few months, who's really researched this. But we know already, clearly in the desert fathers and mothers of the first several centuries, the seeming understanding of prayer that Jesus had held on. And let me give you just a few of the giveaway scriptures. 
Well, first of all, his going alone for 40 days. I always have to remind Catholics that he probably wasn't saying Our Fathers and Hail Marys for 40 days. Well, they say, what was he doing? Contemplation is not saying prayers. Contemplation is a different set of eyes. Actually, some of us like to call it a third eye, whereby you don't say prayers as much as you become a prayer. That you look out at life from a place of conscious union with God. One of the reasons that your city was a sort of pilgrimage destination for me is that for many years I've been a student of Julian of Norwich. And so my heart delighted today when I got to visit her anchor hold here at St. Julian's Church and this afternoon celebrate a Mass. But to think on that spot, but to think that already in the 14th century, in your city, a woman had a level of insight, psychological, theological, Trinitarian, non-punitive. Uh, uh, she literally was uh, at least seven, uh, six, how many, six centuries ahead of her time. And she lived right here in your city. And the sadder thing is, uh, when I was in Ireland last week, and even here in England, most of your own people don't even know about her. <laughs> it's quite amazing. And I, I said at the Mass that God seems to be so inefficient <laughs> that God could raise up a woman of this profound level of insight. Thomas Merton says in his judgment, and I would say my own, I think Julian of Norwich is hands down the greatest of the English mystics, and yet uh, has largely been unknown throughout the world. Uh, so God let her sort of slip into oblivion. But let me give you some of the history why I think that happened. As I say, the contemplative tradition of closing the door, as Jesus put it, not babbling on as the pagans do, as Jesus put it, He's clearly speaking of a nonverbal prayer. In fact, they say the fact that his disciples had to ask him to teach them a prayer like John the Baptist's disciples had seems to be a giveaway that they didn't have any verbal prayers. And they wanted one because every group had their own verbal prayer. And that Our Father that Jesus gave the first disciples, of course, became our prayer. But the clear evidence is there's a prayer previous to words. There's a prayer beyond words. It's the prayer that Paul would call in Romans 8 the spirit groaning within us, finding words for what we cannot find. And it's that prayer that hung on, we think, strongly at least into about the time of Julian, the 13th, 14th century at least in some of the monasteries, not everywhere, in some of the Catholic mystics who still knew there was a non-dual way of reading reality where you don't divide the field, where you don't have to eliminate the negative, where you let reality get at you as it is without judging it, analyzing it, critiquing it, explaining it, fixing it, controlling it, or even understanding it. Now, if you're starting to feel helpless, you're probably right on target. <laughs> That's why a lot of people don't go on the contemplative journey. Because in the early stages, it takes away all your usual control mechanisms, all your ways of feeling smart, superior, and saved. And the ego doesn't like that, to be very honest. You feel rather empty, or to use our Franciscan language, you feel rather poor. You don't feel rich. You feel, as Jesus exactly put it, sort of poor in spirit. Like you're a nobody. Like you're a nothing. Like you're an emptiness waiting and desiring to be filled. Once the Reformation happened, and I'm not here to make any historical judgment on the Reformation. 
It's the Reformation dynamic that put all of Europe for 400 years into various forms of oppositional thinking, various forms of antagonistic thinking, where it was either or. We spent far too much time trying to prove that another denomination or another affiliation or another group, another set of Christians, sadly enough, were wrong to prove that we were right. And once you move into either or oppositional thinking, I'm going to put it as straightforwardly as I can, you no longer have contemplation. It's impossible. It's impossible. Because you're, you're too frightened. You're too needy of being right and proving someone else wrong. So you have to divide the field immediately. You have to read everything in terms of dyads, either or, all or nothing. We had a conference in Texas a few months ago sponsored by our center on uh, uh, the spirituality of the 12 steps, which is a very strong movement in our country. Uh, the work of, of recovery from various forms of addiction. And I'm convinced it, it might even be the one authentic American contribution to the history of spirituality. It, it leads many people to that experience of what they call powerlessness, or, or we called emptiness or poverty. And of course they go there through their pain, through their addiction. But uh, one of the things these therapists pointed out to me uh, is that what characterizes an addict is almost always some form of all-or-nothing thinking. In fact, they even call them dry drunks, that they might stop drinking. But maybe you've met such people. Uh, their mind still thinks in absolutes. If it isn't perfect, it's terrible. If it isn't absolutely right, it's totally wrong. <laughs> if you're not on my side, you're against me. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, I'm going to be honest. Most people, I'll just pick on America, uh, most people in my country think that way. <laughs> That's why we have the kind of empire we have and the kind of politics we have and the kind of foreign policy we have. But it's in part because religion itself stopped doing its job. And we are facing, last time I was in England, Scotland, Ireland too, I, I don't think I had ever met in America the kind of hatred of Christianity that I met in your country and Scotland. As you know, Americans sort of think of themselves as re religious. Uh, think of themselves. Uh, but... Uh, over here, I meet an awful lot of, not just boredom with Christianity, but active antagonism and hatred toward Christianity. And I, I talked to some of our own bishops in our country, and I said, you know, brothers, let's be honest. In a certain way, we got to hold ourselves responsible. We train them in all-or-nothing thinking. We train them in either-or thinking. There was no ability to live with paradox, mystery, which is exactly what contemplation teaches you. To live with contradictions, unresolved ones. In fact, if we don't teach you how to do that, I don't think we're preparing you for the only life you'll ever have. Because every one of you, intellectually, morally, spiritually, and emotionally, are facing a half a dozen, dozen unresolvable contradictions in yourself, in your marriage, in your children, in your country, in your church. And if you can't learn how to hold those with patience and forgiveness and freedom and even joy, you're a pretty bitter person by the time you're my age. And I've met a lot of pretty bitter Christians, even priests and religious who have never been taught intellectually, emotionally. How do you do it? How do you live with the darkness? How do you live with the death of a child? Or the death of a partner? The tragic things that eventually uh, attack all of our lives or enter all of our lives.
But I, again, told some of my fellow priests, I said, now this, this antagonistic way of thinking, this either-or way of thinking, has now come back to haunt us. It comes back to bite us in the behind. But we taught them to think that way. And now, as soon as they find a bit of fault, and there's more than a bit, in the church, they throw out the baby with the bathwater. The first time I preached and taught in India, the missionary picked me up at the airport. He started driving me out to an out-of-the-way mission. And he said rather happily, he said, Richard, welcome to India. You won't meet any atheists in India. And then he waited a few moments. I noted there was a silence. And he said, well, unless they went to Catholic schools. <laughs> now, he was, he was a Catholic priest, and a good, but he was just being honest. That the, the Orient in general, Asia in general, and I see this when I teach Asians in America, have much more ability with non-dual thinking, with living with, with paradox. I don't know if it's the Greek thought patterns that the Western mind was formed on, but we do tend to be all-or-nothing thinkers. And we've had almost no practices, which is what a lot of us are trying to give people, practices whereby they can experience the difference. So it's not an external belief system that you believe something because the creed says you're supposed to or a priest says you're supposed to. But a practice, there's nothing to believe. You just go and you know it to be true for yourself or, or you know it not to be true. We have evidence, for example, that the rosary emerged when the gift of tongues first died out. And of course, when you go in all over Asia, Everybody's carrying prayer beads. You know why? Repetitive prayers have the wonderful function of stopping your left brain from stinking thinking, from obsessive thinking. That's why chants and mantras and repeated prayers were discovered by so many people who were trying to go deeper. But there's another way Chants and prayers and repetitive forms are one. The other is to go into the stillness. But you won't do that. You won't last even 30 seconds unless someone teaches you what do you do with your mind. Now let me tell you a story just to, to bring this history a little bit up to date. After the Reformation, as I said, we had no time for contemplation. Nobody's fault. I'm not here to blame one side or the other. The Catholics lost it as much as anybody else. Because we had to prove that we were right and other groups were wrong. But then right on the heels of it, we of course had the Enlightenment, which even more told us that we were our thinking. I'm sure you've heard this said by many others, but we blame this French philosopher Descartes for a lot of things. I think probably with good reason. But his great one-liner was cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. That would be, for me, the low point of Western spirituality and the low point of Western philosophy. Because we've suddenly localized the human person not just in the top three inches of his body, but in the left part of the top three inches. All right? You know, this leaves a lot out. And, and it's the whole person. As Jesus put it, you must love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole body, and your whole strength. We would call that holistic thinking today, <laughs> straight from Jesus. You cannot access the holy until all of you is here. And you're not fighting it anymore. And you know how you fight it? By and large, with your mind. Your mind is your control tower. Your thinking of itself can't get you there. It's simply not adequate to the task. As St. John of the Cross says, God refuses to be known by the intellect. God only allows himself to be loved by the heart. Now the heart was that holistic image for when you're putting 
all of these different parts together. So when all of you is here, I'm going to call that prayer. Or at least you're capable of union. Union with yourself, and therefore union with God. And union with your brother and sister. But first of all, you've got to see how much your mind is keeping you from doing that. I'm going to give an example that I'm sure is not true in this very warm crowd, but I'll bet there might be one or two of you out there who are sitting there judging me for all kinds of good reasons. Usually people think I'm going to be taller for some reason. I don't know. There's some disappointed at my bald head, you know. Uh, maybe you don't like my my throaty, uh, cold voice. Uh, maybe you don't like my American accent. Maybe you don't like what I'm saying. Or maybe you don't like the way I'm saying it. Or maybe you don't agree with me. But my point is, I want you to watch and observe that how you do anything is how you do everything. And if, I'm sure it isn't true, but if you've been sitting there for 20 minutes judging me, critiquing me, analyzing me, trying to find out if I'm a liberal or a conservative, if I'm a heretic or orthodox or too Catholic or not Catholic enough, which is the way the dualistic mind works, all right? All I want to tell you, you can think whatever you want about me because I'm going to be out of your life in a few minutes. But just know that how you think about me is how you do life. And probably you do your wife that way, and you do your children that way, and you do your neighbor that way. How you do it is how you do it. I'm going to repeat it. I, I know that sounds like I'm saying nothing. How you do it is how you do it. And, and once you see, how do I do life? How do I access the moment and take in my experience? Am I always judging it, dismissing it, uh, trivializing it? Uh, uh, making it of no importance. That's probably how your mind works. And that's what you have to see. Because you won't let go of it any other way. And that trivializing, petty, judging mind cannot get you there. Now that's why every spiritual teacher that I've ever read, a more mature spiritual teachers, like Jesus himself, will we'll have this one-liner almost always in their teaching. Jesus, it's Matthew 7, 1, it's other places too. Do not judge. Now, I know what you smart people are thinking. You're all saying, well, come on, Father, now, we have to make appropriate judgments. We're smart people, and there's good things, and there's bad things. And... No, that's not what they mean. That's not what they mean at all. What, what they mean is that when you approach the moment, your first response to the moment, to the event, to the person standing right in front of you, you first have to be free to say yes before you say no. That's what they mean by do not judge. The normal egotistical mind, the normal narcissistic, dualistic mind that we've all been trained in, you actually approach most moments starting with no. <laughs> why you don't like it, why you don't agree with her, why he's not dressed right, why he's not in your social class, why she isn't of the right religion. You know that's true. When you start with no, brothers and sisters, it's very hard to get back to yes. And frankly, you'll never love. You'll never be a loving person. You'll close down too quickly and too early. So we, we learn to trust this mind, even though this mind is largely a control tower, a defense mechanism, and it's a, a judgment machine. Just makes one judgment after the next. Uh, and in great part, this doesn't mean there weren't saints in the last 400 years. This doesn't mean there weren't people who didn't love God. But for the most part, the contemplative tradition has not been solidly taught for 400 years. And all the experts are agreeing upon that. Let me give you 
uh, just a simple little story that brings this home. I was uh, able to give the retreat to the monks at Gethsemane. That's the monastery in Kentucky where Thomas Merton uh, was a monk. And um, I had given them their, their retreat in 1985. And... Uh, I thought I would impress them. It was a full eight-day retreat, and I wanted to show them how holy I was and how smart I was and how informed I was. And so the first two days, I kept dropping Thomas Merton's name, presuming, of course, this worldwide luminary, this teacher who's been translated into all major languages, would certainly be appreciated there in his own monastery. And then I noticed that when I tend to mention, as Thomas Merton said, uh, some would scowl, you know, and some would sort of uh, grimace or look away. So the second day I pulled one of the brothers aside and I said, was Thomas Merton not popular here in his own community? Thinking perhaps it was that classic situation of the prophet not being honored in his own country. He said, no, we didn't like him very much. And, of course, he's buried right outside, and people from all over the world come to visit his tomb. And I said, well, why would you not like Thomas Merton? And here is what he told me. He said, Thomas Merton told us we were not contemplative. We were just introverts. You got it. And he was right. It was almost single-handedly that Thomas Merton pulled back the veil. And now the teachers have emerged in the last 40 years. He died 40 years ago this December when he was electrocuted in, in Bangkok. But in the subsequent 40 years, we, we have appreciated the veil he pulled back. Because he said the older contemplative tradition has not been taught for centuries now. He said most monks and nuns in contemplative communities say prayers all day. Or sometimes, unfortunately, antisocial people who don't like people that much or who don't like to talk or just like to be quiet. Fives on the Enneagram, perhaps. Or introverted personality types. But that of itself can no longer be called holiness. That's why we named our center in New Mexico, I know some of you have been there, the Center for Action and Contemplation. And people ask me why I gave the center such a long and cumbersome title. And they say, which is more important, action or contemplation? And I say the most important word in our title is and. That's the art form. That's the absolute art form. Stephen and I, Stephen's the director of our center who's accompanying me, and he'll be available for questions afterwards. But uh, we've been trying to practice it for two, year, two weeks, going into different cities, different rooms, different people. How do you keep your center? How do you keep in love? How do you keep in communion while meeting new people, new places? It's heroic. <laughs> if you don't know your center, if you haven't found your center, if, if the divine indwelling is not a living experience, I would say there's no way to do it. You just lose your soul to every new crowd or every new compliment or every new confusion, whatever it is. I usually use, lose mine to the confusions. Let me tell you one more story about that retreat. As I said, it was an eight-day retreat. And after I finished, the, uh, the abbot asked me, he said, Richard, how can we pay you for this retreat? And I said, well, I'm supposed to be a poor Franciscan, and I don't need any money, but I would love it if I could live for a month or so in Thomas Merton's hermitage. I said, I, I've studied him ever since I was young and admired him, and that would be a thrill. The other one was to visit Julian of Norwich's, which I just got to do today. But uh, he said, sure, Richard, uh, just come whenever you want, and it's yours. So when I came, he uh, told me that out deep into the Kentucky woods, 
there were a few recluses. A recluse is more than just a hermit. The recluses only come in for Christmas Midnight Mass and the Easter Vigil Mass. Their experience of communion is not Mass and liturgy, it's living in constant communion with God, just I guess as Julian did. And they said that when the, these monks appear at the door of the church on Christmas and Easter, everybody's waiting to see if they've gone crazy or they're glowing. And so one day I was walking in the woods and I saw one of these recluses coming toward me on the path. He was a former abbot, Father Flavian, a very holy man. And sure enough, he was glowing. Just had this beautiful, warm, gracious smile on his face. And he eagerly came toward me and he looked right at me. He said, Richard. And of course, when he said Richard, I was shocked and frankly a little disappointed because I, I thought he must not be a very good recluse if he knows who I am. <laughs> uh, he said, Richard, you get to preach. You get to preach all over the world. And he said, I don't. And so please, just tell the people one thing. And he pointed to the sky and he said, tell the people God is not out there. God bless you. And he bowed to me and went down the path. And I just obeyed his orders. <laughs> I just told you what he told me to tell you. But unfortunately, the vast majority of Western Christians, Catholic and Protestant, still think of God as out there because they have not had any inner experience. And I think that's why it's so easy to throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's why it's so easy to remain dualistic in either-or thinking because you haven't really experienced the mystery which is always paradoxical, which is always a mixture of darkness and light. If you take, for example, the two great revelations in the Scriptures, Moses on Mount Tabor, or Mount Sinai, Jesus on Mount Tabor, notice in both cases, there's the apparition, there's the epiphany, there's the revelation of a presence, and then in both cases, immediately it's covered with clouds. Knowing is always balanced by unknowing. And unfortunately, we have given Western Christians a kind of lust for answers, a kind of insistence on certitude, on closure, on resolution. And so we have people who aren't very patient, who aren't very compassionate, who aren't very tolerant. In our country, I just use this as a gross example. It's always easier to pick on a, a country somewhere else. But the very fact that racism was not seen as a major or central gospel issue till the late 1960s is an absolute judgment on the immaturity of Western Christianity. That it was not for most people a transformational system, it was for most people a belonging system. My belonging system is better than your belonging system. And so what we fought about was the container and we got so invested in the container that many of our people never got to the contents. Never got to experience what it was all about. Everything was the forms, the forms, the forms. My forms are better than your forms. There's the Anglican form and the Roman form. And we'd waste time trying to prove that one was better than another instead of teaching people how to go into the mystery. And, and that is always formless. It is always a mixture of darkness and light where I, I can't explain it with perfect certitude. It took Julian 20 years of sitting here in her cell in Norwich, England to comprehend one night of religious experience. May 8, 1373, it's supposed to have happened in this city. And she enclosed herself in that little spot for 20 years to try to unpackage what had happened to her. And if you read her showings, 
There's just this constant ability to deal with paradox and mystery and darkness. And she doesn't insist on certitude or answers. She can let God be God. I want to end this by giving you what I try to give to every country I go to because I think it's the best thing I can give you. And even if you forget everything I've said in these 50 minutes, please remember this. Every year in late April in Santa Fe, that's the capital of our state, New Mexico, where Stephen and I live, uh, there's an international conference on the convergence of science and religion. It's really, literally mind-blowing. And the amazing thing is that these PhDs, these scientists, seem to be much more able to deal with hypotheses and theory and mystery than most clergy that I know. For example, the one you've all heard. You know, some say that light is a wave, and some say that light is a particle, and they say, well, they're both true, you know, <laughs> and we're not going to try to eliminate one. I wish the church could operate that way. Jesus certainly had no trouble. His paradoxes, I mean his parables, clearly do not allow for simply one interpretation. As a Franciscan, I'm aware that in the 13th century, Franciscans and Dominicans were the official Catholic debating society. We hardly ever agreed with the Dominicans on anything. We followed John Duns Scotus, one of yours. They followed Thomas Aquinas. And there was the Dominican opinion and the Franciscan opinion. And you know what? They didn't kick either of us out. <laughs> I wish we could be that way today. But I, where I discover it now is ironically in the people who we thought were our enemies, scientists who we thought were so rational. At any rate, one of these scientists that I was listening to several years ago also happened to be a Jewish rabbi. And in his talk, he said, you know, you Christians never really understood the meaning of the third commandment, to not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. He said, for some reason, you thought that that meant you were not supposed to say, God damn you. Well, it isn't very nice to say, God damn you. But do you know that's not even close to the meaning of the commandment? Vanus is emptiness. To speak something in vain is to speak it with emptiness, with futility. It's a waste of time. He said the meaning of the commandment, as it was understood for centuries in Judaism, was don't even speak the name. Don't ever in your lifetime pronounce the sacred name Yahweh. Never. And he said this gave us at the very beginnings of the Judeo-Christian tradition, a cosmic humility about God, that once you think you've got God in your pocket, that you understand the great mystery, uh, er, religion always becomes, he said, arrogant and idolatrous, where we love our explanations of God more than actually falling in love with God, where God refuses to ever be an object of the intellect, but is only known by those who enter into love and surrender. Secondly, he said, and probably a lot of you know this, that when you write Hebrew, you actually just write the consonants. And what it means to be an educated Jew is to have memorized the appropriate vowels and to know how to fill in the appropriate vowels in the appropriate places. I knew that from my short Hebrew class. But the third part is what I most want to leave with you tonight. He said, did you know that the consonants used in the spelling of the sacred name, Yahweh, are in fact the only consonants that if correctly pronounced, do not allow you to use your tongue or close your lips. In fact, we know that the pronouncing of the sacred name was an attempt 
to imitate and replicate breath. That it was inhalation and exhalation. And then he began to do it into the microphone. And in a few minutes, tears started being audible in the room, in a room of PhDs. I now give this to every crowd I can because it, it can change your life. It can change your life. If I would come back here a year from tonight, and if some of you hold on to this and begin to live it and to experience it and to practice it, your prayer life will dramatically change. But notice, it has nothing to do with thinking. In fact, it moves the entire experience to the cellular body, corporeal breath level. And it means, wonder of wonders, that the first word you ever spoke when you came out of your mother's womb was the name of God. And the last word you'll ever speak you don't have to try to remember, do I want to say a prayer before I die? You're going to anyway. That last breath you take on your deathbed will be the name of God. And it's the one thing you've done constantly. You just did it now. And you did it again. You're breathing. And you know what? There's not a Catholic way of breathing and an Anglican way of breathing. There's not a Protestant way of breathing. There's not an American way of breathing. There's not an English way of breathing. There's not a Buddhist way of breathing. There's not a Hindu way of breathing. There's not a Muslim way of breathing. We're all doing this together. And this wonderful God has made the God self that available, that democratic, that accessible. The gift is given. The only problem is the gift is not being received. We've made religion into a series of moral achievement contests. We've made religion into a bunch of hoops that you've got to jump and about a, a bunch of forms that you've got to bow down before instead of leading people to know something to be true for themselves. And you can see why Jesus was so happy with his cousin John the Baptist who was, who was filling in the valleys and bringing the mountaintops down and creating a highway to God. But we've created endless, endless obstacles on this highway. This highway of the givenness of God. The availability of God. The humility of God. The compassion of God. But I don't want you to leave here tonight agreeing with me or disagreeing with me. Liking me or disliking me. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. I want you to know something for yourself. So, for ten minutes, we're going to sit in silence together. The most innocent thing in the world, and yet for many people, the most difficult thing in the world. It's so easy that it's hard to teach. Now, contemplation... Second stage is telling you what to do with your mind. And all I can say, because we don't have that much time tonight, is you just have to practice letting go. Letting go. Not identifying with it. Not feeding it. Inside of every person, there's a great lover and there's a great wolf. And the one that grows is the one that you feed. If you keep feeding the wolf with negative, blaming, accusing, paranoid, accusational thoughts, your wolf will grow. If you keep feeding the lover by letting go of the wolf, largely because the lover is already there, it's called the indwelling Holy Spirit that has been given equally to all of you. And the only difference is the degree you have learned to draw from it. That's all. And that's what we're doing. So we're going to practice for about 10 minutes just letting go of obsessive thoughts, compulsive emotions, and each time one comes and wants to grab you, just say, don't need that, don't need that, 
knew who I was before that came along, I can know who I am after. It's going to be scary because a lot of us think we are our thoughts. So let me lead you into it with a psalm verse. And I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. And then we'll sit for 10 minutes knowing that someone else is going to teach us and guide us during that time. So repeat after me. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be still.